Morning, everybody. Glad to have you here. Welcome if you're new with us. Welcome if you're not new with us. And uh, to our online audience, glad that you're part of what we're doing this morning as well. I'm going to encourage you to go to 2 Peter in your Bible if you brought one with you this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to continue on with where we were at last week. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 7, and we are talking specifically about false teachers. And this week I told you we'd be talking about false teaching, and we're going to do that in just a minute. I'm going to give you some very practical examples. I want to pray with you first, though, um, that God would really center our heart. How many here could identify with that second song we did, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It? Right? It, it's, a, it's a reality that we feel that, that something just tugging at us all the time, trying to pull us off course. It's what Paul talked about, the, the battle of the flesh against the spirit, and the recognition that we're obviously in this relationship with God through Jesus, but yet the things of the world keep pulling us away. And so I feel this need to qualify this song every time we do it because um, we probably do it three times a year. And um, many people think that they're talking about Ebenezer Scrooge when it says here, I raise my Ebenezer, right? You're probably wondering, what, what is that? Why does it say here, I raise my Ebenezer? Well, it's actually a Hebrew word and it's the word Ebenezer. And that, the songwriter knew that, but it's, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge came to prominence because of the Christmas um, story that was written about him, but this song was written before that. Ebenezer is talking about a marker stone in the Hebrew language. Uh, they used to put up marker stones when God had performed something powerful, that they could look back at the stone like a monument stone to say, there, there's an indicator, that's a reminder, that's right, God did that in my life. So the author of the song said, I'm prone to wander, and it's a good thing I've got that marker stone, that reminder of what Jesus did for me, and that he's the one that recenters me, he brings me back to the right position again. So when you hear him write, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, good thing I got Jesus, good thing that Jesus centers me and reminds me through his word of who I am to him. As we talk about false teaching this morning, I especially want to keep that thought in mind for this reason. We easily can be let off course. We easily can see things that we think are accurate but find that it wasn't accurate, and we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. So we go to God and say, Father, would you guide us? Because we also are drawn away from you. We can be prone to wander, not just from the things of the flesh, but through false teaching. So I want to pray with you this morning, and then we'll dive into it to help us understand what Peter's talking about this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church, for these who have gathered at this hour for the purpose of studying your word. And we've just lifted up worship to you because you're worthy of it. And we've declared things about you that are true. You are great. So we declare the greatness of our God, and we thank you, Father, that even when we're prone to wander, you draw us back. And right now, we spend time with your word because we want to be informed, we want to know, we want to be able to react, we want to do the things that Jesus called us to do. We want to know more about who we are to you. So I pray for us that have gathered in, in this hour, those who are watching online right now, God, that you would cause us to hear from you, that you would confirm your word. And because you use your word, you said like a surgeon's scalpel, that you would do heart surgery on us. That you would divide where you need to do separation of our heart and cause us to see things that can't be seen except for your word penetrating so deeply that you can go deeper than we possibly can. Reveal things to us, Father, that we need to respond to. Cause us to use this to speak into the lives of others that we know as well as it speaking into our life. And we ask for this, that we do it in gentleness. Father, we pray for this in the matchless name of the one who died for us and gave his life for the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people say, amen. I read about this situation 30 years ago of individuals who worked in a baggage handling department at an airline, a large metropolitan city, and baggage is coming down off the conveyor belt, and they're working in the back room getting ready to send it out to the front where all the passengers are at. 
And in this particular setting, it was very rare for people to ship their animals ahead of time or ship their animals along with them. It was not a common occurrence 30 years ago. So we're talking way prior to 9-11. These particular baggage handlers saw a crate come down the conveyor belt, and it was marked canine on it. So they thought, well, that's an oddity. We don't normally see that. They were going to look inside to see what kind of a dog it was and, and just examine its health. And to their shock, when they looked inside the crate, the dog was dead. And they were horrified. And they thought immediately, what can we do? How can we help the situation? Well, quickly they thought, maybe we can stall in some way. We'll we'll come up with something. We don't want the airline to get a bad name. We certainly don't want them to think we did something wrong. And so they sent a message out to the gate saying that that particular crate had been diverted to another city and that the owner of the dog could pick it up the next day. So the owner got a phone call the next day that they were going to bring the crate over to the house. Now, in the preceding 24 hours, what they did is they scoured the city looking for an identical dog to the dog that was dead in the crate. And they put the live dog inside the crate. And they called the owner and they brought the crate to the owner's house and held the crate up to the owner and said, we have your dog. And immediately the owner looked inside the crate and said, that is not my dog. And they said, what do you mean that's not your dog? It's identical. That is your dog. And she said, no, my dog is dead. (laughs) Yeah, let that sink in a minute. I shipped my dog here to be buried because we were on vacation and it died while we were gone. See, it's hard to deceive someone when you know the truth, right? It's very hard to bring deception to someone who knows the real story. When it comes to knowing truth and knowing what is deception, the real issue is not whether or not you're ever exposed to false things. You are. If you listen to podcasts, if you turn on the radio, if you watch television, if you read the news, you interact in society in any way, you're being exposed. You hear false things. The real issue is whether or not you can discern that which is false from that which is true. And a lack of sensitivity to things that are false is not because of a lack of exposure. It's rather because in some way we bought bought into the message. We, We believe the message if we can't discern what's false. Here's why. Because we all have a personal bias. And because we all have a personal bias, we're not really the best judges. We're not really the best at determining what's false and what's true. And so therefore, you and I, we have to lean into God's word, that which is always true. Because God never changes, therefore his word never changes. Amen, New Hope? God's word never changes because he never changes. So we have to lean into something that is dependable, that gives clarity, that gives wisdom, that gives discernment. So we have something rock solid. Because of the reality that you are going to be exposed no matter where you're at, Jesus says you better be on high alert because there are false prophets, there are false teachers, and we really took that apart last week when we looked at Matthew chapter 7. I encourage you, if you weren't here, you weren't able to, go back online and watch it because it will help you to understand what we're doing this morning even better. Let's go into the statement that's made now that we're going to spend our time with this morning, 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about Old Testament times when they brought disaster. And then he says, just as there will also be, this is what we spent time with last week, false teachers among you. And here's where we're going this week. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. I understand better now why God moved in circumstances to cause me to teach on this particular subject than what I understood eight weeks ago. Because eight weeks ago, I had in my mind that we were just going to stay right in Romans all the way up to Easter. And and yet, I shared with the elders some concerns I had eight weeks ago in an elder meeting and things that I was aware of that's going on in our nation and in the Midwest and even here in mid-Michigan. And it it caused the elders to go on high alert saying, Mark, you've got to teach on this stuff. And I said, I I would do that gladly. Let's do that on a Wednesday night. And the elders pushed back and said, no, we mean in the morning, in the weekend services. You've got to do this for the benefit of the whole church. You've got to teach on this stuff. Now, I personally recoiled at it a little bit because I wanted to stay in Romans, right? My my focus was in Romans, but I see now why 
they really were moved to push me to do this. Because many people understand the truths of this, I also understand that many believers are also numb. They become sedated to the realities of truth and error. They're not as sensitive as they need to be, that this is a real issue between God versus Satan. This is spiritual warfare stuff. And, and so it's, it's really heavy material. And I want to be very clear with you this morning. What we're about to do is not about throwing stones. That's not my nature. That's not the nature of New Hope. We're not throwing stones at other people. So I just want to hit the relief valve on you, with you, but there is clearly some things going on in the church of Jesus Christ that we need to be aware of, we need to be dialed into. And so we find that there's a potential when we misunderstand the things of God, it can cause distortion, it can cause distraction, it can cause divisions within a church. Look with me on the screen, you'll see what I'm talking about, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. In verse 11, he goes on to say, there's fighting among you guys. It shouldn't be in the church of Jesus. You're quarreling. Verse 12, he says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, meaning Peter, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, what he's saying is these issues are not about who aligns with who, who's thinking like who, but rather, where are you on the things that Jesus declared as true? It's not about what man says is true, but what about what God says is true? Where are you, New Hope, on those issues? Now, invariably, you can imagine over this last week, since I taught on false teachers last week, I've had individuals come up to me and say, uh, hey, uh, Mark, is there something I should know about here at New Hope? What's going on? Uh, no, there's not. I, I just want to be very clear with you. No, it's not about that. It's about you and I being aware of the truths that God declared and what we do in response to what God has made very, very clear. So I go with you into this passage this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, asking you to look at the whole context, and then we'll bring it down to see what he's talking about when he says they're bringing heresies secretly in among the church. Look at the big context of it in verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will, this is where we're going, secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And if you're wondering about that last part, it's simply saying God's going to get his due. God's going to deal with the situation. Our part... Our part is to be on alert because Jesus said, be aware of this. It's a reality. You've got to take action. There's got to be some protection of the flock. So when the New Testament uses the word false, it's using the word pseudes. You see it in your notes this morning. If you're new to New Hope, we use a few Greek words here. We're going to move through them very quickly. There's four particular words I want you to see this morning to help you understand what Paul is talking about or what Peter is talking about here. Now, pseudace, when it's talking about fall, it's talking about somebody who's a liar, intentionally deceitful. Now, very interestingly, when you study the word pseudace in the Greek language, you find that there's a word that we use in the English language. It's rooted in that word pseudace. If I use the Greek word plastos, what English word does it make you think of? Plastic, that's right. Plastos is plastic. Now, plastos is rooted in the word pseudace. And plastos is really important to understand. It's very interesting that plastic items are often custom-crafted to look like the genuine article. They're custom-crafted to look like wood or to look like plastic made into steel. You see ink pens around you right now that are in our pew racks. We custom-ordered those. They were designed to look like steel barrels. But when you pick them up, immediately you recognize that's just plastic. At first glance, it deceives, but it was intended to do that. 
See, in a very similar way, the false teachers, the false teachings, they deal in plastic doctrine. They bring plastic truth. The theology is not based in the Bible, but it's crafted to appear as though it's genuine. So we get really big warnings in Scripture about this particular issue. Look with me on the screen at one of them, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be on your alert, Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handle that word, Timothy. Don't treat it like it's plastic. Treat it as though it is the word of God, the word of truth. Here's another one, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Well, how would they do that? Through the philosophies of men and through empty deception, it goes on to say. See, plastic words are twisted to mean anything you want them to mean. That's why he uses the word sudes. So check this. False teachers, they're using our vocabulary but not the same dictionary. They're using the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. And when an immature believer comes to things that they hear, that they read, things that they see on television, or they listen to a podcast and think that that sounds really solid, that sounds like it's from the Bible, but they're not, those are things that are plastos. So Satan has this goal His goal is to deceive as many as possible with Plastos teaching. And God's Word makes it really clear. It's everywhere. It's not a lack of exposure. It's all around you. What are you going to do about it? It's been there since the dawn of time. So we get the warning to have a response ready. Here's the response. 1 John 4, 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What does that mean? How do I do that? Somebody raised that question in the Saturday night service. You guys are, um, are here in the morning, but last night the, the church was packed, and we went until 8 o'clock at night with Q&A afterwards with people trying to make sure they understand this thing. And one of the questions that came up during Saturday night service was, what does that mean? How do I test it? Well, that's why we're here this morning. That's why we're together. How do we discern these things? In the New Testament, the false teachers are spoken of as deceitful, actually intentionally lying to you. Look with me on the screen at 1 Timothy 4.2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. What is that? That's a liar, someone who's intentionally lying to you and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You see that this is an exact match for what Peter's writing in 2 Peter 2.1 church when he says they're secretly introducing destructive heresies. They're secretly bringing it in. So false teachers are anything but straightforward. They're not going to bring it straightforward about their real agenda because they can't defend it. And if you're a thinking person, any thinking person whatsoever is never going to embrace them if the schemes are unmasked. So instead, here's what they do. They they enter with a gentle agenda, coming in uh, among people, gaining favor, posing as leaders. Some of you here, I've talked to you, your past experiences in previous settings, previous churches, you've experienced those who have deceived and brought division to the church. Some of you have, the wounds are very fresh. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's been something that's secret came in among you. That's the next word, parasego. And this particular word is talking about leading from within side. Coming from outside and coming inside, introducing something stereotypically, bringing it in secretly. The actual Greek word meant to slip in without being noticed, and it was used of criminals when they returned to the scene of the crime some place where they knew they weren't supposed to be, but they came back to anyways, hoping to do further damage. Jesus talked about them as the ones who would pose as true shepherds. They would come in among the flock, and once inside, they would introduce things on a platter that would look really receptive, but their intention was to destroy. That's the third of the fourth word that we're going to, the word destructive. You see that particular word in your notes and on the screen also, apoleia, and it's talking about utter ruin, utter destruction. And when this particular word is used, it's used of eternal destruction. 
So Jesus used this exact same word. When we were in Matthew 7 last week, you saw it. It talked about individuals who go through the wide gate, entering destruction. It talks about Jesus using this exact same word when he described Judas as the son of perdition. The Antichrist is described in the same way in Thessalonians. His judgment is eternal damnation. That word was intentionally used by Peter here. They're bringing something so destructive, it has eternal consequences with it. And then he uses the fourth and last word, the word heresies. And this is the one we need to spend probably the most time with. Heresies is anything that's contrary to the gospel. Anything that's contrary to the word of God. So meaning this, they damn rather than bring salvation. The destructive heresies bring damnation with it. And it has eternal consequences. It also causes disunion along the way. So you see that particular word, heresies. And I need to help you understand it because when it was originally used in the Greek language, it meant to join a specific group of people. It was a a word that neither meant something good or something bad. It, It just meant to join a group. But eventually it came to mean to join a group who was divided from the original group they were part of. So it came to have the meaning of a sect. Look at the definition on the screen from Vine's Concordance in the Greek Dictionary. In the first century, the term denoted an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, and leads to division and the formation of sex. So originally, it meant to make a choice, but eventually it came to mean to make a choice with a group in which you found yourself divided against other people. Promoting a faction within the church is a work of the flesh, according to Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes, that is not of the Spirit of God. That is a fruit of the flesh. That is not of God. God would never bring division. So here's what it sounds like in the church. Whenever someone comes alongside someone and says, do you agree with me or do you agree with them? Are you on the side of the elders or are you on my side? Are you on the pastor's side or are you on my side? Who do you agree with? Make your choice. Scripture's saying that is not of God. That's stimulating a spirit of division. So because false teachers are very good and they secretly introduce this stuff, they recognize they can't do it face forward. Otherwise, people would reject them. So they don't remove truth immediately. They lay, lay truth alongside the false stuff. And they weave them together and eventually remove the truth and leaving the false stuff in its place. And that especially applies when a substitute opinion, like Peter's talking about here, is introduced because they know the truth is going to be opposed. They have to be very careful about it. So let me put all the pieces together in case I lost you on all that. Those four words that we were looking at. Keeping the text in context, here's what we're talking about. This is indicating that the deception of these false teachings, they shrewdly are brought in, and they have disastrous eternal consequences. So Peter's saying these false teachings, what they've done is they've exchanged the truth of God for self-willed opinions. And when you get to the bottom of it, you discover the teaching is nothing more than a religious counterfeit. It's a knockoff. It's a fake. And the worst teachings... According to Scripture, not according to Mark, but according to Scripture are the ones that claim to bring freedom to you, but actually delivers bondage in exchange for it. Look with me on the screen at 2 Peter 2.17. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are still slaves. Now, check what's going on here because Peter's living in the Middle East when he writes this. He knows what it is to see a herd or a flock of sheep or a bunch of camels or horses led to a spring, and when they get there, they find the spring is dry. It's got nothing. It's delivering nothing. Or he knows what it is to stand in the desert and feel the mist of what feels like an approaching storm coming across and putting water on his face, but then there's nothing there to back it up. There's no storm with it. It's an extraordinary picture. They promise much, but they produce little. 
Even denying the master, Peter says, even denying the master who bought them. See, this one really underscores the magnitude of the arrogance that's going on here. So we better understand this. Because the pride of this type that we're talking about, this is reflective of the one who introduced pride in the first place. The father of deception. Jesus calls him, Satan is called the father of lies. He leads the parade against Jesus. He's the one who leads the parade denying Jesus. So both Jude and both Peter write about this thing, that there's something going on here with these individuals and with this false teaching. There's a habitual pattern in which they reject biblical authority. Look with me on the screen to help you to understand denying the master. Jude 1.8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. There's another one, 2 Peter 2.10. They despise authority, daring self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And the word revile actually means to blaspheme. In other words, talking about things of heaven they have no knowledge of whatsoever. Claiming the power of God in situations they have nothing to do with whatsoever. They blaspheme angelic majesties. And in doing that, they refuse to heed biblical doctrine, saying, we've got a new path. We've got a better understanding. We know things you don't know. And thus, they supremely blaspheme and deny the lordship of Jesus. How does that happen? It's granted, it's very unlikely You're going to hear in a church setting anyone deny Jesus openly. They're just not going to do it. But by their teaching and by their actions, they actually reveal who they are. What do I mean by that? That's why Paul or Peter included the phrase, the master who bought them. What he's referring to is the master of a Roman household who would go to the sale, the auction sale of slaves And he would buy slaves to bring back to his household to run his estate. Once purchased, those slaves had to give their full allegiance to their new master. Now, he's translating that over to the church. Individuals who've been bought by Jesus, he's the new master. We serve him. But they're part of the master's household now. And so they owe him their complete allegiance False teachers, according to what Scripture is showing you, is they say they're part of the household, yet they deny it by their actions. They refuse to be under his authority, and so they exalt themselves as masters of their own destiny. How do they do that? They deny the authority of Jesus. They blaspheme heavenly things and begin claiming things about God's word that are not true, even denying the master who bought them, the one they're supposed to be in subjection to. This stems from a monumental misuse of Scripture, an absolute, especially the doctrine of atonement and the finished work of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus did everything necessary for your salvation, would you say amen this morning? That's called the finished work of Jesus. He said it on the cross. It is finished, meaning there was nothing more to do Nothing more necessary for you to do. God freed you completely. So freedom was delivered to you. But the view that we're about to look at, the the four examples I'm going to give you, it, it actually says that the work of Jesus was not complete. Now, it doesn't say that straightforward, but what it implies is that believers are still trapped in something. They haven't realized their true destiny yet. There's more yet to be realized because there's more you haven't yet achieved. Now, let's just do this in a Q&A. Does that sound authentic or counterfeit? Counterfeit. And, and you would say that easily. You say, if, if you say it straightforward like that, Mark, I recognize it. That's false. I get that. Well, let's put this under the category of how to re- recognize deception, how to know truth from deception. I asking this question, is false teaching always obvious? No, it's not. False teaching is not always obvious. We don't always know when we've been exposed to it, but Jesus says it's a reality. You will be exposed. I'm going to give you four things that I want you to maybe write down. I left you a lot of white space in your notes this morning so you can write some things down. These things are not going to go up on the screen necessarily, but you put it down in your own writing. And these are things that are in our world today. 
things that are part of the society that you live in, and I, I would call them movements, or I might even call them strategies, because there's absolutely a strategy behind it. Now, let's think through the first one. I would ask you from this day forward, New Hope, to make a decision that you will be very, very careful about the written material, the print material that you allow to come into your home. And by that, I mean the books that you buy, the magazines that you subscribe to. Be very, very careful about what you allow to come into your home and what you're giving out as gifts. Graduation season's coming up. We like to buy books and give them out to graduates. Be very careful about the things that you're purchasing and passing on to someone else just because someone said to you, it's good. You should own this. Here's an example for you. A runaway bestseller in the first years from 2000 to 2010 is a book that was written by Sarah Young. It's called Jesus Calling. Some of you probably own it. It may even be in your library. Somebody may have given it to you as a gift. Maybe you've given it to people very innocently thinking there's not a big deal here. And it has generated a lot of controversy. Sold 10 million copies worldwide. But Sarah herself recently has said in an interview and multiple times since she wrote the book, my book, it contains the very words of Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty dangerous, isn't it, church? Because I only know of one book that contains the words of Jesus, and you're holding it in your hands this morning. So when someone says, I've heard from Jesus and I've written down the things that he told me to write down, you better be very cautious and back up and say, is that something I really want to give to my friends? Is that something I really want to pass out? Here's a quote from a pastor in Southern California who sees the book for what it is, Pastor Chris Quintana. Jesus Calling is just the latest fad to come through the church like the shack or the prayer of Jabez before it. When truth is mixed with error, then it becomes heralded as the new wonderful thing. Now, there's lots of pages in Sarah's book, and I'm not questioning Sarah's faith. She's the third generation granddaughter of missionaries. I'm not questioning whether or not she's a believer. I'm really questioning the things that she declares in the book to be true, especially for the sense that it can lead people astray. And when it's given out to graduates, it becomes really trusted. When you come to the first few pages, you might look at it and say, I don't find anything objectionable here. What was Mark talking about? You may have to read a little further into it because what happens is a friend gave it to you or somebody recommended it to you and you trusted the validity of that person's recommendation and so your guard goes down and then you read the first few pages and you don't find anything objectionable and your guard goes down even further. But here's the dangers I see in the midst of that particular book and I'm just giving you one example. The book puts words in God's mouth saying these are things that God said when you can't back it up with Scripture. And, and then the author depends on mysticism for her experiences with God. She's completely dependent upon mystic experiences. And so she states very clearly, she wrote what she wrote because she wanted something more than what the Bible had to offer. She knew there was something more beyond what God said in His Word. And so she wrote the book, Jesus Calling. I'm going to give you a second example now, and I'm not questioning this man's faith at all as well. This particular author has written a lot of books. I believe he's a believer, but I really question a statement like this. Now, understand what we're doing here. We're starting out gradual, and we're building into a much, much bigger issue. But let me show you Francis Frangiapani's quote from This Day We Fight. Prayer warriors are the most frightening, powerful, demon-chasing, world-moving beings on earth. In truth, they are co-creators with God. I'll stop right there. Do I need to say anything further? Are you a co-creator with God? Absolutely not. That is dangerously close to the same thing that Satan tried hoisting upon the human race when he said to Eve, you will be as God. Don't you know you're missing out? Don't you know there's more waiting for you? So follow out the quote, in truth, they are co-creators with God. They never wonder about the future because they are too busy creating it. I am not a co-creator. I am a servant of the master. There is only one creator and his name is Jesus Christ. All things were made by him, through him, and to him, and for him. 
Without him, nothing was made that was made. I do not create the future. God controls the future. And I go to him for his will. Pray to God in this way. Your will be done, not Mark's will be done. I'm sorry if I'm getting heated. I have to peel my jacket off in a minute. Okay, this is stage one. Stage two and three will go pretty quickly, and then stage four is huge. Here's one I'm very concerned about, and it's offered in a class form. It's going all the way across the country. It's called the Freedom Movement. And the Freedom Movement is offered in the form of a class. And I will tell you, and I'm just being gentle and honest here, I have a lot of concern with the Freedom Manual because it takes things out of context in the Bible. It misuses Scripture, and you have to be very alert to the use of it. The use of Scripture is something that God has trusted us with to make sure we're interpreting it accurately. And so when you look at Daniel chapter 9 in the Freedom Manual chapter 6, you find very quickly that this particular interpretation of Scripture is inerrant. And I want to explain to you what I mean. In the Freedom Manual, it, it instructs that individuals have to shed their generational curses. In other words, generational patterns of sin that are on them, shadows that have been passed on to them. And according to this particular view, individuals are instructed to dive into their distant past and discover all the roots of the historical sin, things that are there that are holding them down, and they've got to bring them to God in order to be truly free. And without discovering those things, you're not able to achieve the freedom that God has given you. You can't obtain your destiny. Now, here's why I have an issue with it. This view cites Daniel chapter 9 and Nehemiah's experience to reinforce it. Daniel chapter 9, to even the most casual observer of the Bible, understands what's going on there. But let me explain it to you. If you're new to church, you may not. I know many of you understand it, but I'll just give you a brief background. In Daniel, what you discover is that the nation of Israel is being held in captivity in Babylon, what we think of today as Iran and Iraq, modern Persia. God banished them there for 70 years. It was a punishment because of the way that they had mistreated God, mistreated the things that he had called them to. And so God sends them away. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has realized they're in the 68th year of their bondage. And he opens up the scroll of Jeremiah, and he reads from the prophet Jeremiah that the bondage that they're in is going to last 70 years. So Daniel immediately goes into prayer mode. He realizes this bondage is coming to an end, and so he goes into prayer and fasting for three weeks, we're told. He comes before God, and finally, he's praying to God on behalf of his nation, saying, God, there's ways that we have abused you. There's ways that we have rejected you. There's ways that we have abandoned you. I confess this on behalf of my nation. He's imploring God to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, in this particular context, we understand what God did because you can read in Daniel chapter 10 exactly what happened. God responded, sent an angel to Daniel, explained to him why things are the way they are, why they are unfolding the way they are. But the Freedom Manual takes Daniel chapter 9 and it says, because Daniel did that on behalf of his nation, it obligates the believer of today to deal with generational sin, that there's still a shadow over you. They imply that it's still present there, and those things that are undiscovered about you that you haven't found yet, you've got to go in because they're robbing you, and you can't be released to obtain your future until they're dealt with. Now, there's a blatant misuse of the interpretation of Scripture, especially when it comes to generational sin. I'm not even going to get into that today because that is not my biggest issue with it. My biggest issue is this. Any time someone implies that there's something more that needs to be done to have right standing with God, they have abused grace. Any suggestion that Jesus did not do enough, that it's not the finished work of Christ, and therefore we've got to do more to free ourselves, is a complete distortion of the Word of God. And the New Testament specifically warns us, do not add to grace. Look with me on the screen, church. Galatians 
I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if anyone, any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There is so much more to this issue, but I'm not going to burn time with you on this particular thing in the midst of a much, much bigger issue. But know this, according to Jesus' own words, John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Nothing else added, no extra ingredients. Jesus did it. This leads us to the third, and this one's going to go pretty quick, the experiential movement, and it's a big deal. And it's especially a big deal among the millennial generation. So if that's you, you're in college right now, maybe you're in your early 30s, pay attention because this is sweeping through your generation. And it's very scary because it's the same tactic that Satan used with Eve when he said to her, don't you know there's more? Don't you know there's, there's more for you to experience? Now, I, I want to back this up with using Galatians 5 just very briefly. And when you read the verse on the screen, you, you think, well, that sounds pretty crude. What's going on with Paul? Well, Galatians is actually kind of crude book. And it's Paul being straightforward because he's kind of angry. And you've got to interpret it in the context of what's being said here. So just look with me at the verse. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. What's going on? Is Paul like having a bad day here? Really? He wrote that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What's he talking about? In Galatia, there was this barbaric practice taking place in the pagan temples. In the midst of the pagan temples, these priests who served in there, the males were self-neutering. That's the most gentle way I can say it. To prove their allegiance to the pagan gods that they served. Well, somehow, these um, individuals who were these false teachers slithered into the Galatian church, and they began bringing that same thought. And they were teaching Christians that if they really wanted to experience God... If they really wanted to know God in a full way, a way to bring them closer to God, they would do things to their bodies so they introduced the ritual of circumcision among Christians and experience to get closer to God. So Paul says sarcastically here, they only want to make an outward impression. All they're really doing about is boasting in their experience. They're interested in the ritual so they can have this emotional high. And so he goes on to say, so since they want to put on a ritual, if they really want to put on a show, I just wish they would castrate themselves. Harsh, right? You think I'm harsh at times. I mean, just read Paul, study his background and the things that he's saying. Here's the way it carries out in the church today. Um, It's just a reality. You find individuals promoting an emotional experience as evidence that you really, truly are saved. And and so they'll back it up this way. They'll say things to you like this. If you really, truly are saved, you're going to experience sensations. There's going to be tinglings that you're going to have. If you're really, truly saved, you're going to hear God speak to you. If you're really, truly saved, you're going to speak in tongues. You don't don't speak in tongues? I, I question your salvation. Are you really saved? If you're really, truly saved, you're going to speak in tongues. My Bible says, if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be saved. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Nothing added. No ritual. Baptism is not a ritual to save you. It's just the fruit of saying, I belong you don't have to prove to those who wouldn't know sorry, you wouldn't have to prove to those who wouldn't know solid theology if it came up and bit them in the butt. You don't have to prove it. Yeah, Pastor Mark just said that. Somebody last night said to me, "I like it when you get ticked off." I do not stand for an abuse of God's word. No one should. Thank you. I agree with you. 
I, I had a hard time reading this quote last night that I'm about to share with you because we've so re, um, recently lost him. Um, but I wanted you to see something Billy Graham said. Dr. Graham's quote about this very issue. A person is saved by trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and not by bodily sensations and religious ecstasy. We are not saved by feelings. Whatever feelings there may be is the result of saving faith, but feeling never saved a single soul. I wish I had a good southern drawl for you right now, but I don't. Love is feeling, joy is feeling, inward peace is feeling, love for others is a feeling. Concern for the lost is a feeling. But these feelings are not conversion. The one experience that you can look for and expect is the experience of believing in Christ. I miss them already. Just to be very gentle about this, because I have friends, I have family members who are Pentecostal and charismatic and they love Jesus. And yeah, their emotion may be really out there and very broad, but I want to be really gentle when I say this. Goosebumps do not save you. Jesus saves you. Let's go into the fourth and last one. And this one's huge. And uh, it's especially popular with teenagers and those in their 20s. And it is sweeping across Europe. It is the number one movement in Europe right now, and it has, like a disease, moved into the United States, especially started in California 10 years ago, and it's moving quickly through our country. It's estimated there's somewhere of around 22 million people who are involved in this right now, and if you're writing down all four of them, the fourth one is called the NAR. N period, A period, R period. It stands for the New Apostolic Reformation. It has a theology with it that's called the Dominion Theology. The New Apostolic Reformation says this. Yeah, we know that there was a reformation in the church. It changed everything 500 years ago. With the movement of Martin Luther and all those who followed after him, there was a change. God was on the move. But there's a new change happening. There's a new thing that's about to happen here, and God has revealed it to us. We have specific information. So here's what they teach. They teach dominionism, which is the belief that the church must rise up and conquer the planet by militant action. And they do mean that. Because the thinking is this, they teach that, the Jesus, that Jesus will not return in the second coming until the church has taken dominion over this planet. And they mean over all the world's governments, over all the institutions, we'll go into that in just a minute. So here's the belief. The belief is that it is not upon you and I to wait upon God, that he's waiting for us to claim our destiny. So they say the role of the church is to take over the world in order to usher in the second coming. Let me just ask you a question again. Is that the calling of Jesus? What does Matthew 28 say? Go out into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you, to love Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Be dedicated to him. It's not the calling of Jesus. So they obviously have a different take on the Great Commission. And their take on the Great Commission gives place to inner human compulsion for power. There is a lust for power going on there. And this dominion theology is based on Genesis chapter 1. When God said, and let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness and let them have dominion. Any student of the word going back to the Bible knows that Genesis chapter 1 is talking about God giving the right to rule over the things that he had created, over the plants and over the fish and be um, caretakers of the wildlife. And then everything changed in Genesis chapter 3 because of the fall of man. So inherent within this theology is this desire to control other people. And so they attempt to build pyramids with themselves placed at the very, very top. And within dominionism is something really scary because we're talking end time stuff here. There's a, a theory, a, a theology called the replacement theology. And here's what it suggests. It suggests that God is completely done with the Jewish nation. He's wiped his hands clean of them because they rejected the Messiah. He's all done. 
And so therefore, all the covenants that he made with them are now transferred to the church, and they remove the Jewish people completely from God's future plans, which stands totally in the face of Romans chapter 11. You'll see that when we get there in a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year. It's a complete denial of the book of Zechariah. It's a complete denial of prophecy. According to dominion theology, the church is now the engine of history. And like I said, it's risen to great popularity in Europe. It's moving here at a rapid, rapid pace, sweeping across the United Kingdom as the number one movement in the church. And Pentecostal Christians and charismatic Christians are those who have been most susceptible to it, but even they, after they examine it thoroughly and look at it, say, that's not us. That's not who we are. Don't associate us with that because when you boil it all down, here's what it requires. It requires a universal one-world church. It demands it underneath a one-world government, the two working in harmony together. See, dominionism has a goal, and the goal is the new age of worldwide peace. And it sounds very good on the surface, but it sounds very revelation-like when you boil down into it. Because they mean every part of the world system, law, government, finance, medicine, education, arts, entertainment, every category. And if you think it's not possible... You only need to be a student of history and go back to the time when the church of Rome put power through the power of Caesar over everyone in the known world. And if you didn't submit to the Roman Catholic church at that time, you were brought up as a heretic and you were given a choice. You either bow the knee to Rome or you will be executed and they slaughtered thousands That's reality, that's history. That kind of system requires obedience to the laws of the church's own making. But Jesus was really, really clear with us when he said, laws cannot save you. Only justification in Jesus Christ alone can save you. Now, obviously, to alter society in the way that they're talking about would require a one-world government, a one-world church, and so here's what's happening. God's own people have become the Trojan horses to bring this stuff inside the gate. Letting it right inside because Satan's got a plan. And his plan is to use Plastos teachings to deceive as many as possible. There are many reasons to reject this heretical stuff. But here's the chief one among it. It rests completely on man's capacity. It rejects the work of the Holy Spirit even though they say they embrace the work of the Holy Spirit. It embraces the work of man. It calls on man's ability to achieve and dominate and captivate. Ultimately, what it does is it replaces Jesus as head over his own church and puts people in power. So how do you and I personally apply this to our own lives? What do we do with this when we walk out of the auditorium today? What does this mean to my afternoon? Well, two very quick things that I want you to take with you. First of all, I think we need to agree, and let's see if we agree on this church. The church needs to be protected. The church needs to be protected because the greatest defense against all false teaching is a local Bible church that knows and lives the Word of God to such a degree that we affect society, not that we destroy it. And the second part of this is, I don't want you to be naive. We talked about this last week. There are some people who do intend to bring harm. They intend to bring harm to the church, and they can be the nicest people. But if they do not believe in the final authority of the Bible and the finished work of Jesus Christ, do not allow them to influence the church. Do not allow them to influence the church for which Jesus shed his blood. The price is too high. There's a trademark of false teaching and false teachers. Here's what it does. It flatters, makes you feel really good about yourself. It, it, it stimulates the ego. 
And scripture says it actually tickles the ear to the degree of you go, I'd like more of that. And you start leaning into it. That feels pretty good. To the point where you actually begin listening to false teaching. You turn aside to fables because it tickles the ear. Look with me on the screen at 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Here's two things for you to take with you this morning, very quick. Ask yourself this question every time. What is the source of the things that I'm hearing, the things that I'm seeing, the things that people are telling me, what's the source? Because a true Bible message always has a reliable source. It's called the Bible. That's the source. False teaching cuffs some crafts, a plastos message to fit its own design. And here's the second one. What's the substance? Is it putting Jesus at the center? Because with a false message, Jesus is always out on the perimeter. It may use the name of Jesus, and it may speak about how it can change your life, but if you listen very closely, here's what it says. You'll find Jesus is not essential to the life change, but rather the custom things that they have crafted that no one else knows about, only they do. They can help you discover things about yourself that the Bible can't possibly show you. There are few things more offensive to God than a distortion of his word and the work of Jesus Christ. I don't know of anything else because it's through Jesus that we're saved and it's through his word that he equips us completely sufficiently. So when you come to Timothy, you find Paul writing to him saying, Timothy, you will be thoroughly equipped to spend time in God's word. I'm going to close right now with a quote from one of the guys I like to study, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is a Jewish Messianic Jew, Jewish scholar. And Dr. Fruchtenbaum has a great insight about this particular issue, and he's basing it on 1 Timothy chapter 3, in which Paul says to Timothy, it's the word, Timothy. It's God's word. Spend time with that. It will equip you. So he goes on to say this. You'll see his quote on the screen. What this verse teaches, we must not miss. The scriptures are sufficient to make one thoroughly complete. There is no need to try to receive some supernatural zapping from the spirit world. There is no need to spend money to travel to someone to lay hands on you until you either fall into uncontrollable, unstoppable laughter or make animal sounds. The written scriptures are able thoroughly to complete you and furnish you for every work you need to do. You can become spiritual and mature in faith through the scriptures alone. Here's the hard part. However, this will take the discipline of studying the word of God, spending hours, days, weeks, years of a lifetime to comprehend more and more of the word of God. But in this technological age, people have become lazy and therefore seek the instant breakfast approach to spirituality, trying to find a zapping experience to get it, and sometimes even feeling they have become a god themselves. By the authority of this passage, I can declare that such experiences will not lead to spirituality, but instead will lead them to being deceived and then continuing to deceive others as well. Well said, Arnold. I'm going to pray with you right now, and here's how I want to encourage you to pray. You may have friends and family members who are caught up in false teaching. Pray for them that God would drop the shackles, that they would see clearly. Pray for yourself at the same time that you would become more discerning. And I'll pray for you that way. Let's do that together, church. (coughs) Father, we recognize it's, it's not a question of whether or not we're exposed. We are but how we respond to the exposure is what you ask us to do, to to gauge whether or not it's of you or it's fake. So, Father, we come before you right now asking for friends and family members that we know that might be caught up in heresy. God, rescue them from that. Your own word declares that you know how to rescue your church. And we believe that, so we lean into you and ask that you would accomplish exactly what you promised to do. 
rescue. Bring clarity. Bring discernment. Give wisdom where it's necessary. Father, I pray for each of us that are gathered here right now and friends that are watching online that we would be strengthened to know how to discern. God, give us the spirit of discernment. Embolden us to speak against false, false truth. All those words work together, but they do. There's things that are false that claim to be true, but they're not. So God, I ask that you would do that for us as we take on our responsibilities this afternoon and this week to live Jesus before a watching world. We're not asking you to make us militant. We're not asking you to let us take over the world. We're rather, Father, asking us to let us live out the calling that Jesus has on us to make disciples and to live like a true disciple of Jesus. We ask for that in humility. Come before you asking, Father, that we not be guilty of throwing stones, but rather embracing your word. Your word will not go out without accomplishing that for which you sent it forth. You declared that yourself. So accomplish it, Father. Bring about your will and your purposes. We pray for that in the magnificent name of the one who shed his blood for the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.